0: I'm Kieran. And
1: I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult.
0: Where two coverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. This is
1: my Michael Ferris voice. We should start with the question. <laughs> Why did the founders neglect to include parental rights in the text of the Constitution or Bill of Rights? Uh, okay, I'm going to drop the voice. We must remember that the whole concept of a legally enforceable Bill of Rights was an innovative concept. That was newly conceived in the american republic james madison once remarked that a bill of rights was but a parchment barrier that is a paper tiger madison had witnessed invasions of religious liberty even after virginia adopted religious freedom in its 1776 bill of rights at the time the view was that religious liberty was truly achieved in 1786 when a virginia statute made this guarantee effective this is completely backwards under our current legal theories Constitutional provisions are more powerful than statutes. But in the founding era, because the British system had no written constitution, the idea of a law higher than a statute was still a relatively novel idea. It was not until the U.S. Constitution was adopted as the highest law of the land that became possible to have a bill of rights that was understood as a robust protection of our liberty. Moreover, it was an unimaginable that a socialistic state, which purported to care for children over and against fit and willing parents would ever result from the state and national governments being created in the wake of our separation from Britain. This man needs an editor so bad. No one would ever envision a form of government that pitted fit parents against the state over the right to make decisions concerning their children. Thus, it was some time before a constitutional clash occurred between parents and the government over the right to raise children. It happened in Oregon in the 1920s when the anti-Catholic bigotry of the era manifested itself in a law which banned all private education and demanded that children must be educated only in government schools. It was reminiscent of a law in the era of King James, which imposed a fine on parents who sent their children to papist colleges on the continent, there being only Anglican colleges in Britain at the time, but this was a free America, not the tyrannical era of Tudor monarchs.
0: He was a free steward. America. He was
1: a Stuart. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> free America. Uh, instead of telling parents that their children must attend a particular denomination schools, told them they must re- present their children to the government for compulsory instruction. This is where you insert the uh, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where he's in the canning factory, but it's school and his head is the can and he's being filled (laughs) with information and then sealed up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Supreme court heard the case of Pierce v. Society of sisters in 1925 and rendered an incredibly important decision that trumpeted this principle, the fundamental theory of Liberty upon which all governments in this union repose excludes any general power of the state to standardize its children by forcing them to accept instruction from public teachers only. The child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right coupled with the high duty to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. While homeschoolers have both praised and relied upon this decision, we must recognize the basis on which the Supreme court found parental rights to be constitutionally protectable interests to be a bit thin The legal principle used in Pierce was first announced in Meyer v. Nebraska, the court ordered that those privileges long recognized at common law as essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men were protected under the Due Process Clause. This historically grounded formula was eventually refined to protect the rights that are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. The first use of this phrase was in the 1937 Supreme Court case in Palco v. Connecticut. If implicit rights are tied to history, then there's a solid basis for determining what was a recognized right at a particular point in time. But that when the discovery of implicit rights is simply left up to the personal opinions of the Supreme Court justices, this theory becomes a vehicle, which can be used by justices to impose their personal political opinions on an entire nation. This is from the HSLDA Court Report 2006 from Mikey Ferris.
0: And this uh, is one of the foundational pieces that caused him to go ahead and start parentalrights.org and try to get a parent's bill of rights passed that they are still, to this day, trying to get passed through Congress. Because it's not enough for parental rights to exist in an ether. They must be documented as fundamental and sacred and above every single other thing
1: welcome back to the parental rights deep dive with kieran and eve um kieran for those who tuned out my reading uh what does mickey ferris say here again
0: uh so basically he's saying that parental rights are implicitly fundamental they are like part of laws that have always existed and the fact that they aren't recognized in the u.s law explicitly is because it was just unconscionable for like the idea that parental rights would be infringed back when you know we were writing the constitution but that has changed
1: he's also against ruling like creating law from the bench but which I, which I think is like really funny right really like, funny now given where we're at now
0: yeah yeah like what happened to 2006 michael ferris who was like it's bad to legislate from the bench we need stuff in law and now he's like let's go ahead and just uh you know overrule all these decisions that have been decided that we're using you know cases that we're using to legalize homeschooling and stuff but uh, are nothing. bad because <laughs> <laughs> nothing <laughs> changed Mikey
1: f has always been a pregnant pragmatist yeah, you had to use Wayback for the to find this piece. Was it is it hidden and not available now?
0: Yeah. So um, this was from the court report in two thousand six. Which uh, unless you're a paying HSlda member, you can't access the HSlda website from back in that time. The archive. Yeah, without using Wayback Machine or being fortunate enough to have your own <clears throat> copy of the court report archives (laughs) on your hard drive (coughs) (laughs) so yes i used wayback machine to track this down because back in the early aughts michael ferris was less um cared less about being appealing to the general population when making his arguments and was very much more of a kind of theocratic loud fundamentalist approach to things and now if you go to parentalrights.org, it's a sanitized
1: yeah and as i as i understand it living with a lawyer for a roommate like his argument is that like the concept of fundamental rights has always existed in the same way since you know before the united states existed to today and so it's fair game to interpret rights the same way Now, on using text from back then and not updating things, which brings me to my favorite soapbox of all time, which is (laughs) biblical inerrancy fucked us all up in every which way. Same story all over again.
0: The literal interpretation of the Constitution with today's understanding of language as if it's the same while calling yourself an originalist is no. <laughs>
1: sorry no at least they're consistent. Um, okay, so what we're doing here today is we're going to be giving you uh, a like history overview of the evolution of the concept of parental rights so that we can, you know, as we're talking about where things stand today and the nuances of the argument, you have this this background info and context. It's going to take as long as it takes. I don't know if we're going to be doing two parts for the history or one, but buckle in because it's going to be a long ride.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I've spent so many hours looking at case law and my brain is just like, there's first of all, judges need to write shorter. They should I mean, use every less lawyer, words. <laughs>
1: <laughs> every lawyer needs a better editor than the one they have. Uh <laughs> And that's all I'll say there. <laughs> I work with lawyers and live with lawyers and I I need to sleep peacefully at night. <laughs> Two key texts that we are referring to for this work, in addition to our general knowledge and the resources of the experts at Coalition for Responsible Home Education, who are very generous to like check us on things as we are putting this together is Marianne Mason's book From Father's Property to Children's Rights, The History of Child Custody in the United States. And Jeffrey Schulman's The Constitutional Parent, Rights, Responsibilities, and Enfranchisement of the Child, which a friend of the pod, Carmen Green, was a research assistant for at some point. So these two texts... Kind of give us a lot of the material that we're working with today they fill in the gaps between like what we already knew and hopefully this will be helpful
0: yeah so when we started off researching this we we were like oh you know it's, it's parental rights like how hard can it be to research this and as it turns out there's there's a lot of history uh there's a lot of cases and a lot of like it goes back a long way. I was like, how, how far does this go? Cause you start off and like most of the precedent that groups like parental or the Parental Rights Foundation, they're the same thing. Alliance Defending Freedom and a bunch of like other kind of right wing organizations that advocate for parental rights will start with is They'll start in the 1920s. Um, Because that's when a lot of the big kind of landmark cases happen. And that's when the court used- Where they really zero
1: in on this concept specifically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's when the court used the words fundamental in relation to parental rights.
1: But it goes so much further back. And it really, like, the idea of children's rights, parental rights- the idea of children's rights evolves as society evolves from, you know, like, what is the relationship between people and their community? What is the relationship and obligation between people and property? And where do people fall in <laughs> that, that spectrum of, like, property v- versus individual versus, like, you know, Uh, autocratic power of some kind so one of the things that like you know kind of backing up it's really evident how like people's views of themselves in their relationship to each other like in society shaped the case law as it comes closer and closer to the present day I mean we're familiar with like serfdom feudal law and a lot of the like the rights of children and obligations of parents to their children kind of goes back to that feudal dynamic of like you have like a a lord has an obligation to provide for his serfs who are doing work for him like obviously like abuses of power exist, but like that's the general like principle of like there was some kind of protection here for the people who had less power because their ruler had obligations to them. And you see this coming through with like custody cases in like old England and in indentured servitude, contracts obviously this is all white people okay, um, yeah. and usually males but like when you have a family who cannot provide for their children they would like send farm out the kids right for uh, into like indentured servitude or to you know a convent or whatever mm-hmm. um and like that was part of they were obligated to do that because they couldn't provide for their kids so they were obligated to find them a place where the child would be provided for and you know the kid would have if the kid became an indentured servant like there's a like the master has an obligation to train this student in the trade that they're indentured to so like if it's you know, if you like me grew up reading Johnny Tremaine and like the silversmith, like kids. That's exactly who, you know, what I was thinking given. about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you know, his, he has certain like tasks and obligations to do a kind of work for his master, but his master is obligated to teach him mm-hmm. and to allow him to have this like future of like having his own business and like, you know, having his own clients eventually, because he's got the set.
0: Yeah, and and also to like feed him and give him a place to sleep him, and like give him yeah. clothes and like let him go to school and church and like basically like do all the family obligations that the family wasn't able to do.
1: And this is based in like the the understanding of like you have an obligation to your community to participate as a member of that community and to keep the health of the community at a certain level like so, whereas, like, you know, we're all very, like, individual, mind your own business, kind of, like, not my problem, that's not how society functioned back in colonial period, the colonial period, because there, there was a, everybody was in each other's business because it was their business mm-hmm. in ways that it's not anymore. So, like, welfare systems existed through these, like, these tools of, like, convents and uh, indentured labor and uh, apprenticeships and stuff, like, that was a kind of a welfare system, like a safety net to keep these kids, you know, and give them a future. So when you get into, like, custody battles, um, which is where children's rights tend to come up the most in early legal history, like this is, that's a set of assumptions that everybody's operating under, which is so different from where we're at today. That was a, a long. Yes. <laughs> winded. Yeah. Yeah. Setup here. A,
0: a long way to say that children were kind of property that they're, they existed be- to serve the Because they were
1: property, they had more protections. Right.
0: It's weird. <laughs> Which isn't to say that children aren't treated as property today because they totally also are. And right. that that is like one of the big undercurrents in how laws involving children's rights are like determined even still. But it's is- so
1: imbalanced because like there's no like understood obligation. I mean, there is, but there is. the the right is pushing for less of an understood obligation to the child as property. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you get to these, these early cases where you have situations where like a dad is abusive. The mom is trying to get custody of the child. And it's like, who gets the kid, even if, like, the woman doesn't have property rights and all of this stuff, and it, and so, there develops this legal concept in English common law in the late 1800s, early 1900s about best interest became the best interest standard. Like, what's the best interest of the child? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read this section, which is quoting from Marianne Mason's book, de is, exemplified, this is a case from 1804, Rex v. de Manville, exemplified the doctrine of a father's paramount rights to his children. In this case, the mother had run away from an allegedly brutal father, but Lord Ellenborough of the King's Bench returned the child to her father, even though she was an infant at the breast of her mother. By contrast, a quarter of a century earlier, Lord Mansfield, this is Bliss's case, 1774, Allowed a mother to keep her six-year-old child when the father, a bankrupt, mistreated mother and child, Lord Mansfield, held that the public right to superintend the education of its citizens necessitated doing what appeared best for the child, notwithstanding the father's natural right. Thus, he planted the germ of what would become the best interest standard in the new world.
0: One court in the New World justified its decision of giving custody to the father by stating that the language of the law places the husband and father at the head of the household to serve the, quote, peace and happiness of families and to the best interests of society. The court continued, by the common law, the legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage. The obligation imposed on the husband to provide for their wants and protections makes it necessary that he should exercise a power of control over all the members of his household. However, even courts that gave superior rights to the father doctrine usually conceded that he could lose this right if custody should be, quote, inconsistent with the welfare of his children, which is paramount consideration.
1: So, again, like, you see this, like, feudal relationship dynamic being mimicked in the family, in the home. It's like, yeah, you get to have, like, this power over and, like, more rights than your your, pro- your spouse and your, your children, but w- with the understanding that you are providing them a level of, like, a quality of life.
0: Right. Yeah, like the, the you know, like, being in Pride and Prejudice and, like, you know, my father earns 10,000 pounds a year and, like, that's what we all have to live on and, like, you have to find another person to marry who's makes a pledge to provide you with however many whatever because like that's how you had no rights so that's what you had to do
1: yeah and you know honestly in some ways like i feel like the protections were better because it was much more clear about what your obligations were right Again, this is speaking of white people only,
0: basically. Right. But very, very important. Very, very we important
1: will... class, class and race intersection here. But yes.
0: Yes. And yeah, like we will later touch a little tiny bit on like this is very different from like Iqua stuff. Yeah. Like this is sort of a it's not really a different conversation, but it's. Racism in the U.S. is bad and it does weird things.
1: And and the (laughs) the law has for a long time existed to protect that. Yeah. Uh, Okay. And then so Schulman, we had a conversation with him, you know, prepping for this episode. And one of the things he said in, in that conversation is like, if you're thinking about, you know, before the American Revolution, the idea was that you were raising your children and training them toward independence? Education was a public concern and a compulsory duty of society. Fathers were entitled to their child's work as the father fulfilled his duties to his child. And again, we see that mimicked in the indentured servant contracts for these, these, you know, um welfare cases, these children that needed that outside family support. And all this is like kind of goes back to like how were children conceived of, like, what is a child? Like, what is, do, how do they exist in society? And like, you know, before, I don't know, before the industrial revolution, I guess, kind of, children were seen as like miniature adults who were potential workers to contribute to society and the economy. And as there became more of an established middle-class children started being seen more as innocence needing protection. You have like, there's documentation of parenting advice, like shifting from being like to parents generally mm-hmm. to being directed more at mothers and fatherhood was like less seen as like a, an involved role involving like input and mentorship and supervision. And his role was like more turned into outside the home, protecting and providing And so women, like children became like an extension of women in this period. And this kind of goes into the whole middle class Victorian era idea of like women as the angel of the house, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, children were also like similarly romanticized as these like extensions of that, you know, virtue and innocence that the woman was supposed to have and bring to the family.
0: Right. Yeah. Which also, you know, it makes me think a lot of the more traditional family values where like you have like Mrs. Beaver and just sort of like doing housewifey things and being there for You're referring kid to Mrs. And... Beaver from Narnia. No. Leave oh. it to Beaver. It's Leave Cleaver, it to Beaver. Not Beaver. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: It I, never watched like I, remember this this I was thing. like
1: I was like Mrs. Beaver, I don't
0: know. No, well, no. I guess it kind of yes. works. Okay, sorry. Yeah. But no, like the the, the stereotypical nineteen fifties, like housewife, like you know, just sort of being that like being made that sort of ideal and you live at home in the kitchen and you like have knitting parties and you like make your kids snacks and then your children like live this sort of idyllic lifestyle where they're not working in the factory which is good we shouldn't have that be a thing that happens but they also like it's it's not seeing these people as people
1: I mean it's a very modern invention and I mean modern in terms of historical eras not in terms of like right now but like the idea of the nuclear family working as like an independent unit like Mm -hmm. isolated from society and not having like being like impermeable right in relation to outside society Um, whereas before I had been much more fluid um, much more like I don't know the, the there was a lot of like flow in and out and women were workers and had always been workers. And as the middle class got more and more established, you had more and more white women being like, kind of like kept as ladies of leisure, which of course, like begs the question of like, what was everybody else doing? Like nothing changed. Right. <laughs> the other like recent class, you know, women were always working. There was always that. But, like, when you have this, like, white supremacist, like, fundamentalist romantic notion of, like, getting back to a certain time period and, like, riv- you know, making things the way they used to be again, like, none of that actually existed. And that nostalgia is, isn't very artificial, like, created around, mm-hmm. like, these shifting values and, like, trying to reinforce the new and different power dynamics. To shore up cis male white power.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing about all of this is all of the like. Let's go back to this time. Like it never existed. It's a modern invention that we created to uh, oppress people. Like it's there. <laughs> there was none of this idyllic time period that people and, and, keep wanting and to go back. Whatever they're to. trying
1: to, whatever the idyllic thing that they're trying to recreate, like only exists if you're cis and white. Right, like the the like romantic future that they're envisioning does not involve rest for women of color.
0: No. <laughs> so, basically, a lot of things changed with the Fourteenth Amendment, and as a refresher, I will quickly read what the Fourteenth Amendment is because. We all know what it is in our minds, but, like, there's a lot of amendments. So (laughs) the 14th Amendment is equal protection, right? And so all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens, of the U.S. and the state they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunity of citizens of the United States, nor shall the state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws.
1: And so the way I understand it is this is like post-Civil War. We are we are changing the Bill of Rights from being a like legal suggestion to statutes right and you know reinforcing this at the federal level
0: exactly and this is what a lot of sort of the, the big landmark parental rights cases are built on so it's the 14th amendment and the 1st amendment which is the you know right to free speech freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, all of that, and the Mm -hmm. 14th Amendment, which is your rights can't be abridged without due process. And so this is what laid the groundwork for Pierce in 1925. Um, It laid the groundwork for... uh, for Meyer versus the state of Nebraska in 1923, for Wisconsin v. Yoder, and for Troxell versus Granville, which was 2000.
1: And you're going to unpack all of those. I'm going to
0: unpack all of those, yeah. (laughs) Um, So when I was doing research for this, I thought it would be uh, smart to get sort of like the history from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So I went to parentalrights.org and looked up what cases they cite as the ones that they use for their history of parental rights. And I looked those cases up Mm -hmm. and like, for the most part, there are a couple cases that happen in like the 1870s, but for the most part, things happen in the 1920s. And so the first one. Well, and before we get to the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We've got the, the tender years doctrine. We got to talk. about. Oh yes. Do you
0: want to unpack that one?
1: Okay. So, Basically this is like where you're getting the like legal precedent around this concept of like children being an extension of the maternal unit. <laughs> and there is like a divorce case uh and 1904 New York divorce situation And the the direct quote is, in all cases, however, where the custody of tender infants is involved, the prime consideration is the welfare of the child. The right of the husband must always yield to such considerations. Nature has devolved upon the mother the nurture and care of infants during their tender years. And in that period, such care for all practical purposes, the absent in the absence of exceptional circumstances is almost exclusively committed to her. At such periods of life, courts do not hesitate to award the care and custody of young infants to the wife against the paramount right of the husband where the wife has shown herself to be a proper person, a.k.a. not a slut, and is able to fully discharge her duty to her child. So, again, like, we're getting the codification of, like, this romantic idea of what children are and what mothers are and what motherhood is and means and does. Right. And
0: okay. this is also... I could be wrong, but probably like the first time that this responsibility has been explicitly awarded to a woman as opposed to the husband or the father, like the head of the household. Yeah, because up until this point, for the most part, it was like because the man was the person who could own property, who could do all of the things like he was the person who was awarded custody he like a woman couldn't file for divorce or do anything like that
1: right and there were lots of cases where like it's like abandonment was involved or like like vicious abuse like they would give it to the mother but there would be like a time period after like that the tender years were over where like the father could resue again to get that child back and often
0: did great right. because again gotta like keep the family line keep that property in your family and your name continuing because that's the thing that white people care a lot about mm-hmm. and so then in the early 1900s there's some like more local cases that sort of talk about the rights of parents versus the rights of schools and In which it is set as a precedent that you know the school must adhere to the parent's request as long as like it's not impacting other students and then then we get to and that's uh in 1909 it was school board district number 19 versus thompson
1: 18 yeah yeah
0: yeah 18 not 19 in which it states, you know, the schools have an obligation to like say what the kids are going to learn and prescribe the textbooks and all of that. And the parent has a right to make a reasonable selection from the course of study for his child to pursue. And the school has to like be chill with that. Yeah. Which is an important sort of underlying case, but is not like a huge foundational case in the same way that, Meyer versus the State of Nebraska is, which happened in 1923, and the interesting thing about this, um, this case in particular, is that the U.S. really didn't like German people.
1: Yeah, this is the the German.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and so I mean, it's it's right after World War One. What can you say? Right. Yeah. And so in the state of Nebraska, they wanted to, like, ban teaching a foreign language, a.k.a. German, before eighth grade. and well, like, teaching
1: in primarily a foreign right. language. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, because you couldn't have your kids be bilingual before eighth grade. That's bad for American citizenship, or so the state of Nebraska said.
1: Okay, and also just, just a note in case you forgot, like, we don't have a national language. Right. By the way. This is like bullshit on so many levels, but
0: continue every every level. But the takeaway that all of the parental rights extremists use is in the decision, they said, corresponding to the right of control, it is the natural duty of the parent to give his children educated education suitable for their station in life.
1: Corresponding to the rate of control. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> that that bit in the decision of this case is returned to over and over and over again throughout the years in like every other subsequent parental rights involving case. That Myers versus Meyer versus Nebraska is returned to as a C we said that parents have the right, the natural right Mm -hmm. of control and it is their duty to give their children an education suitable to their station in life and this comes into play
1: it's not a bad it's like i mean on some levels it's not a bad ruling because like the idea is like it is a is a racist xenophobic ruling but like on other the other hand is like they have a right the parents have a right to control like in so much as they are allowing a child to have what we would consider an open future like right And so limiting the child from having that open future is like, you know, an obligation that you have in exchange for that right. And, and like on some level we like this, even though like the actual case itself is like just silly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean like what this wound up meaning was that this, the teacher was able to teach in German. Like German was not banned uh, as a language to be taught. It was deemed within the right of parents to choose to have their child learn in German. so As long
1: as they weren't like restricting their future to be like engaged citizens.
0: Right. Exactly. And so then two years later uh, is Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. And I need to remember which state this happened in um, because basically, okay, so this was in Oregon and Oregon uh, wasn't chill with Catholic people. At the time,
1: In most of the US wasn't. I mean, remember when JFK got elected, they were worried that the Pope was going to tell them what to do?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of anti Catholic uh, sentiment happening. And Oregon tried to ban Catholic schools. And that was obviously found to be unconstitutional because um, that's, you know, an infringement of people exercising their First Amendment right and their 14th Amendment rights as well. And which is
1: why flagging this. Which is why we have the the Nazi homeschool case that's going on. And like, yeah, these parents basically do have the right to like indoctrinate their children, yeah, right, in like exclusively Nazi, Nazi ideology as their education. Like, it it's based on the same principle.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Pierce cites the Meyer versus Nebraska case. This case was used and is used as a basis to include homeschools as non-private schools. And it's used to say that compulsory attendance infringes on the parental rights to dictate the education of their children. (laughs) So the key point in the decision in this case is the fundamental liberty upon which all governments in this union repose. Oh my God, these people in their writing excludes any general power of the state to standardize its children by forcing them to accept instruction from public teachers. Only the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right coupled with the high duty to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations.
1: Again, the, all the like, Right-wing bullshit is based off of the, the right, the right, the right. Mm-hmm. And they overlook the part where each of these rulings includes a duty to the child. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 That's, you know, it, the important part is that they have the right to decide, not not the outcome.
1: And this is where the, like, f- fundamental parental rights kind of is coming up again and again as, like, with the assumption that, like, it means the same thing then as it does today. Which is not the case.
0: No, it's not. Which is what um, we're seeing,
1: seeing. The piece that we read at the open of this episode with from Ferris.
0: Yeah. There are several more cases that happened that all cite Nebraska and Society of Sisters in their decisions that I'm not really going to get into because it's really, really redundant. So uh, I'm just going to skip ahead <laughs> to Wisconsin v. Yoder which happened in 1972, which I think most of us are familiar with, but if you're not familiar with it, basically the TLDR is Wisconsin had compulsory attendance for kids to go to school until they were age 16 instead of eighth grade. And this Amish family had an issue with that because they said it violated their religious beliefs. So this is where the First Amendment comes into play mm-hmm. at, in a in a parental rights case
1: and if you remember only one case from all the cases that we are talking about in this episode this is the one that you will see coming up the most often as yes. relevant to parental rights and homeschooling
0: yep and again this case references like meyer versus nebraska and pierce v sisters and a whole bunch of other cases are referenced as reason for the ruling in this case, which said that the state of Wisconsin was infringing on the religious beliefs of the parents by forcing their children to go to public school. Therefore it was unconstitutional. And this is why we have religious exemptions now for homeschooling.
1: So, You know, the religious right of the Amish parents to pull their kids out of school and like make them work on the farm at eighth grade uh, as opposed to age 16 creates a situation where in Virginia now, you know, my mom registered us with the state as homeschooling under religious exemption for religious reasons, which meant that we had no obligation to be accountable to anyone about what kind of schooling we were getting. And like, like if we were getting any schooling at all, like, because it's under the religious exemption clause, like there's no oversight and that's based off of this case.
0: Yeah. So much educational neglect and abuse in homeschooling settings happen because it's legal to do because it would infringe on your parents' right to practice their religion.
1: Yeah, so when are we starting our own religion where kids get to tell their parents what to do?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, that that would involve giving children rights on the same standing as their adult parents. Mm -mm. Obviously, no, like that's not a thing that's happening. But so there was uh, another case that Yoder references is Prince versus the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, which very like similar kind of situation and the bit that is important in yoder in the decision was even more markedly than in Prince. Therefore, this case involves the fundamental interest of parents, as contrasted with that of the state, to guide the religious future and education of their children. The history and culture of Western civilization reflect a strong tradition of parental concerns for the nurture and upbringing of their children. So here we have again establishing that the rights of parents are like elevated and higher and extremely important and should not be infringed. Yeah. Uh and not a whole ton has happened uh like at the scale of Wisconsin v. Yoder. Um there have been there like there are a bunch of cases in the 1970s um and then there's Washington versus Glucksburg in 1997 that honestly I had a really hard time parsing, (laughs) but all of that, that this is basically the rest of the cases just sort of reiterate the idea that parents have an implicit and in, and fundamental and even quote unquote constitutional as protected under the 14th amendment right to, educate and care for and control and all of these things for their children. Um, Which brings us to the last case that we've had, which happened in 2000. It's Troxell versus Granville. And this is really interesting because this is the case, this case paired with the emergence of the uh, signing of the ratification of the UN Rights of the Child Act in the early aughts has, is, is like the basis for activating the modern parental rights extremism movement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Convention is the rights of Convention. The
0: child. Yes. Yeah. The Convention of the Rights of the Child. The language uh, is different. Yes. It means the same thing, but it's
1: different. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so in Troxell versus Granville, the situation was These people had been married. One of them committed suicide. Grandparent in Washington state, a third party is allowed to sue for custody of children or was in 2000. And so one of the parents committed suicide and the other parent was like, okay, whatever. And the grandparents sued for custody and wanted to be seen like what the Supreme court determined was like an unreasonable amount um, and and to, to the point where it would, and this is key, infringe on the fundamental right of the parent to control and care for their child. Um, and so the, the key takeaway in Troxel, after they go through all of the cases that I mentioned and some others that I didn't, <laughs> the decision written by O'Connor says in light of this extensive precedent, it cannot now be doubted that the due process clause of the 14th amendment protects the fundamental right of parents to make decisions discerning the care, custody, and control of their children. And this is what the right wants to put in law.
1: And the, the dissent is this the dissent that thomas
0: it was like a half dissent it okay. was like like he 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 agreed it's, with it his, but he estimate. was he was yeah he, he he didn't think they went far enough
1: okay so thomas says in reaction to this opinion our decision in pierce v society of sisters holds that parents have a fundamental constitutional right to rear their children including the right to determine who shall educate and socialize them the opinions of the plurality justice kennedy and justice Souter recognize such a right but curiously none of them articulates the appropriate standard of review i would apply strict scrutiny to infringement of fundamental rights this is where it gets real tricky
0: this is where it gets fun so what the (laughs) fuck is strict scrutiny and why do we care at all about these weird words
1: okay let me try to repeat what we have been told by our in house counsel unofficially. So
0: we are not lawyers, this is not legal advice.
1: <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about. We but we do know what we're talking about. Traditionally there's like rational rational basis review, which is the normal standard of review that courts are applying to situations. So like does the government have a right to like tell people how to live in these ways so like zoning disagreements that kind of stuff most things fall under that then there's intermediary review which is about tends to be used around like discrimination cases and then strict scrutiny is the like highest kind of review and it's it's where a law is infringing upon a fundamental constitutional right and it has to like really thoroughly prove that the government has an interest in this conversation. And so what Thomas is saying is like O'Connor's decision does not direct you know future judges to in what kind of review they should be using to look at these questions and he's recommending strict scrutiny which implies like that kind of first amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech kind of rights.
0: Right. Basically would elevate the rights of the parent to the same level of like freedom of speech rights.
1: Right. And the omission of that suggests, you know, cause he's, he's responding to this being like, you didn't say this, so you needed to have said this. And the deliberate omission of this kind of suggests that like, oconnor's leaving it to intermediary review
0: which makes more sense honestly
1: right because this is yeah. about how we interact with each other not like human rights and i just have to say like the concept of human rights as like a philosophical term is like i'm not I'm not as well-versed in this as I would like to be. But my understanding is that, like, it is another one of these evolving concepts that does not mean the same thing as it used to mean. And so the way we think about human rights is relatively new
0: Mm -hmm.
1: when it comes to, you know, philosophical manifestos and in in terms of the law. So there's a lot going on here as these, like, societal understandings of these terms are changing and the assumptions around them are changing and what's being loaded onto them is changing.
0: Right. Yeah. But, you know, Michael Ferris et al. would like us to believe that the understanding of fundamental rights, fundamental parental rights as described in the 1920s are the same as we think of them and how he has set out to interpret them today, which is to basically mean like they are revered and cannot be infringed. So like if if something comes up in court for strict scrutiny, for the most part, like that law or whatever that is in question is like not really active until it's determined whether or not it actually infringes on your constitutional right. And if it mm-hmm. does infringe on your constitutional right, then it is not a thing anymore.
1: Mm hmm. And they're not bringing that by not bringing that level of scrutiny to this question, like tells you a lot of things.
0: Right. And if we, if we did bring that level of scrutiny, if we, if we, if, if the parental rights people got their way and we passed the parents bill of rights at the federal level, which codifies, you know, the right of parents as fundamental as a written down explicit constitutional right to the same extent as the 14th amendment and the first amendment and all of the other ones children's rights we don't have like they're they're not it's not happening like children will forever be seen and treated as extensions and property of the parents Mm -hmm. and the parents will always be exalted to the level of like, they can do no wrong unless they are like actively murdering their kids.
1: Right. It becomes like a lot of work to prove that a child, that a parent is not treating
0: their child. Right. And it's already a lot of work to prove that. Yeah. Like it's, it's already hard for, (laughs) for that to happen.
1: Speaking of burden of proof. How is this playing out in other situations today?
0: <laughs> not great.
1: Not great. Not, not great. great.
0: No, no, it's not great. Yeah. So like, <laughs> where do you want to start with that?
1: Uh, well, let's we'll get into the the rapists parental rights stuff. Okay. So yeah. This, like, easy. Whole, whole easy. Yeah. You know, the light stuff here. There's this whole conversation about like, can a rapist sue for parental rights, sue their victims for parental custody? And currently, like they can in many states, and it the there's a federal uh, Rape Survivor Child Custody Act which allows grants to pass legislation ter- determining parental rights of men who father children through rape. But, and this is, I'm quoting from I. Uh, Prison Reports article from last year here, Uh, and it says, states must use the clear and convincing evidence standard, which is the predominant standard in the U.S. for termination of parental rights, to determine whether the father committed rape. The clear and convincing legal standard means that the evidence being presented must be highly and substantially more probable to be true rather than untrue. Currently, however, only 32 states allow the termination of parental rights of rapists to conceive a child, while others have varying restrictions in place, and many still require criminal conviction. So, again, like, you know, stepping in to protect a child against an abusive parent requires a lot of burden of proof on in terms of, like, documenting the abuse. And the same thing is applying here with, like, you know, protecting the rapist's parental rights. You know, there's a lot of proof that has to be gone through to remove them from the equation and -hmm. protect the victim from having to deal with them. Great. That's the fun stuff.
0: Great. Cool.
1: And then there's ICWA, which is, yeah. So ICWA is Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm Mm-hmm which basically like protects tribal sovereignty in terms of like treating tribes within the United States as sovereign nations, essentially. And so Indian identity being like community membership based as opposed to race based. And it, there's a case right now that was argued last summer um, before the Supreme court. And we're still waiting a ruling on it. Hallen versus raquin which is about an adoption case. You want to unpack that for us?
0: Yeah. So I have not been following it super closely, but basically this could overturn ICWA and ICWA existed Because, like, people were kidnapping Indian children and getting away with it and, like, adopting them and raising them as, like, good little Christian Protestant kids. And it was, like, a whole big thing and a big problem. It's an industry. It was super abusive. It was so bad. And so in, like, the 50s or 60s, they started, like, trying to make that stop being a thing and I think in like the 70s ICWA was finally created or ratified which made it so and I'm not an expert I'm just like I did like a modicum of research on this
1: (laughs) (laughs) it basically like made it so that the tribal interests in raising the child get bumped to the front of the line if anyone is trying to like have custody of a kid Right. So placing, prioritizing placing native children in native foster homes within their tribe, as opposed to with like outside of that community. Right. And Halland versus Brackeen is one of those situations where that happened, and the white foster parents are suing for custody of the kid, and kind of setting it up around like racism and discrimination as opposed to sovereignty rights. So framing the prioritization of the tribe's right to raise the child as if that was like racial discrimination against white people, which is by changing the the terms of this protection from tribal sovereignty to race-based
0: stuff completely guts the power that Iqwa has to protect
1: Mm -hmm. native children
0: yeah and at no point is like you know the child's like you know need to be in their community like put at the same level i mean it it would be like that's what ikwa is supposed to do but like if this gets overturned then right
1: and so by not having like robust like children's rights laws this whole conversation is opened up mm-hmm. and tribal sovereignty is made vulnerable because that's the precedent that they're working with
0: right and unfortunately like it exists for a reason and i, I had given the u.s's propensity to do racist shit and get away with it i feel like overturning it is bad idea
1: but but Ferris and friends changed their minds about ruling from the bench.
0: Yeah, and now they think it's a great cool thing to do. So it's, it's what all the cool kids are doing when you when you pack it with a bunch of PhC friends. So, uh. you know,
1: <laughs> dogs happened and now it was vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Fun times. Fun times. I think the last thing that I wanted to go over is that the Parental Rights Foundation is still obviously looking to get a amendment passed in 2020. We haven't really had any
1: constitutional federal a constitutional
0: one at the federal <laughs> level, also state level. They're working on all the state levels, but they want a federal one. Yeah. And they want a court. They want a court. They want a case to go to the Supreme Court again because it hasn't happened since uh, Troxel. And so in, in 2020 in Texas, another case happened. They want to establish strict scrutiny. Right, exactly. Their whole goal that Clarence Thomas explicitly outlined in the year 2000 is to get strict scrutiny to be the standard that is applied to parental rights cases. And so in, in 2020, Another situation kind of similar to Troxel's happened in Texas where uh, there was these parents who were separated and divorced and this woman was going to marry her fiance and then she like got in a a car accident. And so the father had custody, the grandparents sued for custody and the fiance sued for custody. And both the Alliance Defending Freedom and Parental Rights Foundation and other random right-wing Texas family organizations got involved and wrote letters to the court to say, like, one, the uh, natural biological parent should have full say over what happens to their child. And uh, you should agree with us because of all of these Supreme Court cases that agree with us. And the court ruled in their favor. And the father is still obviously letting, like, his kid see her grandparents, And the fiance. But they really were excited when this happened because they were like, this is going to be the next Troxel case. And so they are actively looking for the next Troxel case. And because it's been settled in Texas, it's not going to go to the Supreme court. Right. So they they
1: need a new one that they can. So they need a new one. And you know, it's ADF. They're very good at this. They will Mm -hmm. find one.
0: They will find one. And given everything that's happening right now, with parents' bills of rights being, you know, whipped through legislatures all over and whatever, like, it's going to happen soon. There's going to be another case that they're going to push to the Supreme Court so they can further embed the idea in precedent Mm -hmm. that parental rights are fundamental and protected at like to the same degree as all of the other rights and it's really, really crucially important that we understand that like parental rights in the way that they're describing them come at the cost of the child.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like they just want the parent's right to choose and to dictate. Mm-hmm. They don't care. Like they're, they're not caring about the parental responsibility being met. They will say that they do. Like they're like, obviously a parent can't murder their child, but like. There's so much between (laughs) murder (laughs) and, like, all of the other abuses that can happen. And if children don't have any kind of protections, they're set up to be at the, like, hands of their abuser until they can escape.
1: Yeah. And we've really lost ground on establishing children's rights as a, like, solid legal argument to use. And so we're stuck playing in the parental rights sandbox as the parental rights extremists are setting the terms of play for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's really, really scary. Yeah. So that's, um, that's where we're at with the law right now. And that's mm-hmm. that's how we got here. And hopefully, like, this has been kind of long and it's a lot of law stuff. So like, hopefully, we explained it in a way that makes sense because understanding at least the basics of, like, the gravity of this and the hugeness of this is crucial to understanding what's coming next and how they're going to get there and, like, who's mm-hmm. behind it and why, which and this we'll is, get to.
1: This <laughs> is why words mean things and have so much impact in these kinds of situations, which is why we're always urging people who believe in children's rights to not use the term fundamental parental rights and not like encourage that concept because it creates such an imbalance of power.
0: Mm -hmm. Children have rights. Parents have responsibilities. The end.
1: Go get your merch from Sarah G. If you want to shout that to the world? Yeah,
0: put it on a tote bag.
1: <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be back again with part three.
0: Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cold podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album nazo Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchentablecultpod. Thanks for listening.